The handout is the same as the week before. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, some of you are new faces, so you're jumping into the fourth installment of, uh, of a series. We've had three lessons. The underlying theme throughout the epistle of Corinthians is the cross of Christ. Paul's statement, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But that's not a simple reduction of the gospel. That is the essential focus of the gospel. And there's a difference. He's not reducing everything down to, well, I'll simply preach that Jesus died for your sins and you accept him and that's that. What he is doing, though, is planting the cross in every particular issue in life. And so he takes the Corinthians through the hot issues that they are debating and discussing. There is a condition of incest going on in the church, and they're highly tolerant of it. Part of that comes from the fact that they felt that what was done in the body didn't count. Some of them did. And this is why the issue of the bodily resurrection is so significant, because some were saying that what happens in the physical plane and the bodily life doesn't really matter. This is the beautiful thing of, I think, and the truth of the gospel is that it's holistic. It's body, mind, and soul. It's the whole person that nothing is to be despised. The physical isn't supposed to be despised. And so we kind of, we introduced the main theme, resolved to know nothing was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, applied it to some of the issues. And then I think the, the masterpiece of 1 Corinthians is Paul's treatment of the bodily resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. He approaches this probably different than we would today. I don't mean different in truth, but he has been building a case that has begun with sort of the creedal confession in the first part of chapter 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. First and foremost, Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers, and he talks about the resurrection. We're going to pick up on the study guide on page 2, the back side, letter D. So you are parachuting in, but that's great. Love to have you anytime I can get you. The thesis that I worked out and we talked about last time was this, that if you look at salvation history unfolding from Genesis to the Gospels, the cross, if you have eyes to see it, is inevitable. That theme has been building. And so if you look at history, if you look at salvation history, the end point of that is going to be the cross of Jesus Christ. With that, and I don't think there'd be much debate about that. I think that the types, the genre, the sermons, the prophets, all of that's kind of pointing to, I mean, just take Isaiah 53, take the Passover, take... Uh, Genesis 3.15, that uh, Satan's head will be crushed. Bruise your heel, but Satan's head will be crushed. You take all of that, it points to the cross. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of this moves toward the cross of Christ. 
What if in God's creation, in the nature that God has given, that the wonder and the counterintuitive notion of that pointed to the resurrection, the glorious bodily resurrection of Christ? What if the Big Bang and DNA and and what we're learning about the microcosm of the cell and, and the macrocosm of over a hundred billion galaxies and uh, all of that. If What if we interpreted that with its wonder, with its creativity, with its art, all of that pointing to the very reasonableness, the kind of almost inevitableness built into the nature of creation pointing to a new glorified resurrected body. You and I in this Western limited empirical materialistic world tend to just discount all of that. We immediately myth myth lights go up in our in our mind. They're like flashing. This can't be true. This can't be true. This is fiction. We have such a limited understanding of the nature of truth. And yet this is why I think that science is really compelling. And commending. I don't find science distracting or uh, a negating of the truth of Scripture, but instead a, a wonderful invitation to it, um, a setting of it. So that's where we are. And uh, I'm going to begin reading verse 35. We're at D, the new biology. Verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15, the bottom right corner in your study guide on page 2. After having preached two sermons, I wrote in my notes, start here. Is that maximum ignorance? Yeah, maximum <laughs> ignorance. But someone will ask, okay, do you see where I am? But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Now, you can see how this is difficult to grasp, an acorn and an oak tree. You look at an acorn, you can't imagine the oak tree. You look at a zygote, and you can't imagine a human person. Most of our contemporary medical thinking, biological thinking, underscores the similarity of everything. You know, that our cells are so, I mean, fruit flies and humans, there's not that big a difference on a cellular level. But obviously, there's tremendous diversity. So which, at which end are you going to look at this? You're going to look at it from an end that keeps reducing, 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 reducing till you get down to the minimalistic understanding of the object under research and say, wow, this is all alike. Or do you look at the grand scheme and see how much diversity is built in? Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he is determined and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly beings, and there are earthly beings. 
But the splendor of the heavenly beings is one kind. The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. Notice no disparagement there between heaven and earth, between space and planet earth. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. There's as much uh, poetry there as uh, observation. Verse 42, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Number 10, these are some observations on this, and I'll stick pretty close to this so I don't have to think too much. The old bi biology is odd that human beings are so closely related to fruits and vegetables and that over 60% of human genes are the same as those of fruit flies. The scientific view of the human person is inevitably and understandably reductionistic, breaking down the person into component parts, reading DNA, mapping genomes, discovering proteomes. This effort is true as far as it goes. The old biology aims to explain the what, where, when, and how, but it doesn't come close to explaining the who. Meaning has no causal connection to molecular structure. But there would be no molecular structure without meaning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ took place in history. It was a physical resurrection of a new glorified body. But it has no historical cause. The cause of the resurrection lies outside of history. It is in history, but it's not of history. So one can't put together an empirical argument that ends with an equation producing the resurrection. But it is nevertheless completely historical, truly physical, and very material. This is how it will be with us as well. Physical, material, a new, glorified, resurrected body, but it doesn't have a causation outside of God in our material world. The old biology is based on death, decay, digestion. Everything gets broken down. Your blood is cleaning your body through the spleen and through the kidneys, through the bladder. I mean, it's death is the destruction of cells. It's breakdown. This is how the old biology works. It's how biology renews itself, how life renews itself. Now, you know I'm not a scientist. You know as soon as I start talking about this kind of stuff, I'm in way over my head, right? But, you know, that's, that's it with being a pastor, 
you know, I don't, I have no expertise, so I'm a generalist. And I have to talk about these things because they're also part of theology, part of creation, part of redemption. And, but, I mean, think about that. The old biology is based on death. Could you imagine a biology that's based on life? Not death, but the reverse? That's the fantastic notion that is being floated with this new glorified resurrected body. Death not being the basis of life, but life being the basis of life. Phenomenal. And this basically is what Paul's argument is. Verse, uh, verse 11, number 11. By contrast, the new biology is odd that human beings in Christ will be raised up in immortality. The new biology has set its sights on the future promise. The perishable will be imperishable. Death is not the final word after all. Redemption answers creation's longing. The old biology spirals downward into the amazing complexity of the so-called simple cell. Great, wonderful, put an exclamation mark. The new biology spirals upward into the revelation of God's will and wisdom. Great. Put an exclamation mark on it. It's not in competition. And that's where the coherence of this gospel truth comes into play. There's not this big discontinuity between what science discovers. There is a great continuity, a coherence. Number 12, in view of the wonder of creation, the resurrection makes sense. The new biology fits in with the old biology. The same God who created the cosmos raised Christ from the dead. The more we know of this scientific world of ours, the greater the sheer wonder, astonishment, and amazement of the power of the resurrection. All of that, Paul is aiming to convince those people who deny the bodily, physical nature of the resurrection and affirming the truth of it in Corinth that this is a vital truth. Should I be asking for comments here? I don't have to. <laughs> yes. I do like the idea. It helps me think uh, outside the box. If you've never seen a tree, you see an acorn and you see this is what it will become. If you saw a tree, you, you'd be imagine, you couldn't understand that. But we do see trees, so we can imagine. Right. But you know, how, what are you saying about the acorn and the tree? How does this make this connection? I'm not quite getting it. What we do, what we tend to do, what I understand we tend to do in science is we, we see the similarities. We see the continuities. We see the similar cell structure of living organisms. We, and, and I mean, obviously, that's going to belong to an evolutionary theory that we've kind of, we've kind of come up from the ground up and we've advanced. Uh, theologically, though, Paul is not looking at the similarities, but he's looking at the dissimilarities. And he's looking at the wonder of that dissimilarity, the splendor of the heavens, the splendor of the person. Um, you know, after a good science study of human DNA and mapping out the genome, you ought to go to a ballpark and look at the diversity of humanity. Um, he's underscoring that diversity. 
And the diversity in such a way is to magnify, well, he's not magnifying, he's drawing attention to the magnification of what God has done in creation. And that's a signal to us. That's a, um, an observation that leads to the credibility of the wonder of a new bodily, glorified, resurrected person. So it's not so fantastic. I mean, a hundred years ago, just look at what we didn't know about science and what we know now and the trajectory of that knowledge to me is more evidential of the reality of the resurrection than a disqualification of it. Now, still, it's a matter of faith. It's not a matter of empirical mathematical logic because the cause of that new glorified resurrected body, just like the cause of Jesus' physical resurrection, lies not in that empiricism, not in that historicism, not in those facts. It lies in the work and will of God. God breaks in. God makes this be. But that God reality and that God power is not out of sync with what we have seen, what we live with, what we have experienced. Drop down to 16. Um, Paul saw a pattern in nature that helped him understand the resurrection of the body. A tiny seed is buried in the ground. It germinates. Its outer shell dries out and cracks, and it begins to sprout. Slowly, the seed is transformed from a little hard-shelled pebble into a flowering plant. If we didn't know better, it would be hard to imagine the relationship between an acorn and an oak tree or a zygote, a human person. Paul gives God the credit for this. Amazing natural transformation drives home the point that no one can imagine what the resurrection body will be like. 17, Paul marvels at the seemingly infinite variety of living organisms, a truth no sensible person would deny. In the phenomenal diversity of life, Paul found logical support for the reality of the resurrected body. It was conceivable that the God of such a wonderful, diverse creation was fully capable of doing as he promised, creating a new glorified and resurrected body. So that's the thesis that Paul lays out there. No historical causation for the bodily resurrection of Christ, yet it happens in history. No, no kind of empirical proof for the new glorified resurrected body, but the wonders of creation point and testify to their evidence of what God can do and what God does. Verse 50, under number E, the victory of Christ over death. So he's come at this in a number of ways. We've just tapped into very briefly the science way, the creation way. The victory of Christ over death. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death 
has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that a lot to swallow? But notice what gets swallowed there is death. Like a morsel that's downed, eaten. An image from the prophet Isaiah and then drawing on the prophet Hosea. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Number 20. On this side of eternity, bodily death is part and parcel of biological life. It factors in everywhere from reproduction to digestion to circulation. Apart from death, we would be unable to live. But in the new creation, bodily existence will be characterized by life, not death. Now, life is characterized by death and dying, grief and humiliation, frailty and weakness. But a new day is coming when the key to life will not be death, but life. The inevitability of decay, shame and weakness will be eliminated by the life, glory and power of the resurrection. Number 21, two phrases to keep in mind. Paul considers the contrast between death defining natural life and death defines spiritual life. Death defining natural life versus death defined spiritual life by turning to salvation history. If the wonderful diversity of creation points to the power of God to create an entirely new mode of existence, then the message of salvation history declares that there is much more to life than the old Adam. The first Adam stands for sin and death. He represents the fallen human condition. The last Adam stands for salvation and life. He represents the first fruits of the new creation. Wow, this would change us to dwell on this truth. That there really is, that this is the, the preface. This is the interlude. Uh, this is the introduction uh, to our existence, our life. It would change the way we live in this temporal material world, I would think. I don't think it would make it screwy, but I think it would give it a certain bent, a certain twist, a certain understanding Really, what we believe is an awful lot when you think about it. We don't believe just in a little. Uh, the vision that the gospel gives is huge. It is truly life-changing. Um, it would govern, I prob probably, it would, it would shape our dying process. It would shape what we value and the priorities and the ambitions that we have. Uh, we would sit maybe a little looser to our physical life. Um, it would not be the, the measure of our sense of purpose and value. And we certainly wouldn't minimize it because of that, that sacramental understanding of the importance of the physical life that Paul is really underscoring here. Uh, but we would see it more as the preface. Agreed? Disagreed? Gil, it didn't get any cooler in here. No. 
know, I'm just nervous. Um, Oscar? Yeah, I don't know how long it was between when Paul wrote First Corinthians and Second Corinthians, but it seems like he kind of, to me at least, this, picks up on this theme again in Second Corinthians where he talks about outwardly we are wasting away, which is kind of like, to me at least, a really powerful image of like decay. And I'll probably butcher it, but then he, he, he then contrasts it and says, "Well, it's like what refers to waste away these light and momentary afflictions for achieving for us an eternal way of glory." So it seems like we're picking up on this same theme again, where he's talking about waste of the bio- biological reality of wasting away, and then just like that, it's kind of like, like, but that's nothing compared to what lies ahead. Well, and here we spend so much time thinking of our present moment happiness. Uh, the difficulty we have of, uh, of really understanding that big picture, um, I think, is a challenge for us. Yeah. Um, and we have a longer challenge now that we're living longer. And we need to pace, maybe, <laughs> and be more focused on that challenge. Um, Don, you were going to say something? <laughs> when I see your lips move, I begin to think that you may want to say something. It's become kind of cool to um, always be questioning, semi-doubting, not wholeheartedly asserting, I think, in our culture. People are mistrust that are, are too confident, I think. Uh, so how can we be humbly confident about these assertive truths that we confess? Um, how can the humility lie with, in us and on us and yet a bold confidence in this truth that's confessed and affirmed. I think finding that kind of balance is critical. Uh, and being able to preach with a certain rightful truthfulness and assertiveness, um, but not with arrogance or any kind of ego. And then dwelling on these kinds of truths. I mean, I, uh, I think they come to us... Um, this confidence of bodily resurrection sort of comes to us in many different ways in Scripture and in our life. Uh, and I'm a little, you know, I dwell on this. I'm immersed in this. This is all I do, really. It's all I do. And yet, 
Virginia can testify. <laughs> well, no, but she can also testify to the effect that even though I dwell on this, it doesn't always impact how I think. <laughs> Don't agree too quickly. How I, you know, how I live my life. Um, and then I think, well, then I, I need to be lighter on everybody else because uh, just time for time. Um, but it, how we look at death, the death of our loved ones who are in Christ, really ought to be very different because of this. We do grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. And this hope is not, I hope, I hope. This hope is in the solid reality of a new glorified resurrected body. It should change the way we grieve and, and change the way we are so intent on controlling the future. Um, you know, your comments last week about the death of your father and his passing, they hark back to me the line in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, mm-hmm. we shall all be changed, the sound of the trumpet. And that, I've, I've dwelt on that passage on and off for a couple of years, for several years, really, about the end time, but it, it, at your father's passing, that was, he had been comatose, and then in an instant, in the flash of an eye, he opened his eyes and he gave praise. You know, and that has a great deal of meaning when, to me when I contemplate mm-hmm. what you said last week about it. And, I, you know, that to me is, is the true hope, hope, not the I hope, I hope, but the true hope that we all cling to, that we can, in the twinkling of an eye, all of our doubts and all of our fears and all of our worries will be erased, and we will we will dwell with God. Notice that, in line with that, coffee. The Paul speaks of us going asleep and then the trumpet raising, uh, and I, I probably shouldn't go here, but. Bear me out for a minute or two. Um, You realize that space and time are both creations, right? Space and time are creations. So as soon as we leave this space-time realm, we're in a completely different type of time zone. So much of our thinking about the end times projects our timing into our after this physical human life timing. Uh, Remember Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And he didn't interject there that there'll be a time gap. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. He speaks as if it happens. You're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. And the... uh, the scriptures have no uh, understanding of sort of this um, bodiless soul out in space. There's no conception of that. We're body, minds, and souls. And the new glorified resurrected body, I think in our minds we have this kind of um, almost sort of like an evangelical purgatory in which we're all sleeping, waiting for that moment. But that's projecting a different our time zone into that future time zone. What I'm saying is that I think that to to die is to be present with the Lord, 
with a new glorified resurrected body. And the convergence of all that will happen is in that moment. Uh, and maybe I just better leave it there. Um, have you heard that before? Good. <laughs> you never want to be out there all by yourself. Um, but it just, uh, obviously, it, it creates some sort of hesitancy about how a definitive one needs to be in describing what happens after you die. I leave it at absent from the body, present with the Lord in a new glorified, resurrected body. Uh, Paul's last line, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Well, that's the, that is the bottom line. In the light of this new glorified resurrected body, in the light of the hope of Christ's resurrection being the model for our bodily resurrection, Brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. As I said last week, um, this is the text that has been chosen by the family of June Whipple, a former Christian education director at First Presbyterian Church and uh, will be involved in their memorial service on July 22nd back in San Diego, June's memorial service. And this is the text. I can hear June say these words. Um, that in the light of this truth, it always bears down a practical, personal reality. To stand firm, let nothing move you. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Now you work out between you and Christ and the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father, how you and I can give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know that that labor is not in vain. It's a labor that none of us can ever retire from until Christ takes us home. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this great truth that you have embedded in your scriptures. Help us to understand it, grow into it. Thank you, Lord, for each one here. I pray for your blessing of this truth in our thinking, in our emotions, in our actions, to your glory. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. amen.